Hello everyone and welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by Gail Schimmel. Hello everyone. I've realized I always start by saying good morning and people could be listening at any time of day. So I'm going to try and break the good morning habit, Fiona. I like it. I like it, Gail. Tell us how has your writing week been? So I have been very good and steady with my editing. I'm editing about a chapter a day Mm -hmm. and I am adding about, I'm trying to add 400 words to each chapter just to make sure that I'm giving all the detail that I'm imagining and I've talked about that before. Um, So I'm loving the editing process and I'm sticking to it well. And I've also got a new idea brewing. Mm-hmm. And it's just so lovely when you in that, you know, a lot of my books, most of my books have come to me quite complete. Mm-hmm. I have the what if idea and the rest just falls into place. And this idea that I'm playing with now, who knows what will come of it, hasn't come to me complete. There's something, there's a piece missing. I've only done this process once before with two months where I slowly developed the idea. And I'm loving it because I allow people into my head. And then I'm going to, that didn't work, you can leave and then try something else. And and I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. I feel a little bit like I'm slowly getting my mojo back. Oh, I like to hear that. And you, Fiona? Well, I had written 10 pages of the screenplay that I'm working on and had sent it off to the woman who's mentoring me through this whole process. And then I had a Zoom meeting with her and I got a piece of very interesting feedback that I'd like to share with you and the listeners, which is that as an author, your characters are your puppets and you can make them do and say whatever you like. And they're not really going to push back against you. Um, you can tell them how to deliver a line. You can tell them what they're thinking, what they're feeling, when to stand up and walk across the room, and that's all fine. So I, the author, approached the screenplay in a similar way where I was saying, I was saying it to the characters, but the effect was I was saying it to any future actors who might be attached to this project. Stand up do jazz hands, nod, uh, make your face look like this, etc. And I got pushback from this mentor of mine who was saying to me, you can tell an actor how to feel, but you can't tell them what to do. And my immediate reaction was, but I'm the author. They must Mm. do what I tell them, Mm. you know. They must be my living meat puppets Mm. and sort of obey what I've put on the page. And she said, no, actors don't like that. Tell them how they are feeling and tell them what the words are that they need to say, but don't tell them how to deliver the line or how to move their bodies or what expression to pull or anything like that. You just tell them that they're feeling jealous. Because they have their own creative process and their own creative input. It makes me think my first book was a children's book. Mm -hmm. And so there was an illustrator And it was quite difficult when her vision was completely different from my vision. Like I'd, as I'd written it, I'd illustrated it in my head. Right. And then what she drew was completely different. And that recognizing that collaborative partnerships involve allowing other people their creative license. Yes. And I am not used to this and I'm having to get my head right and to realize that I'm not the director. Mm. I'm, this is not my place. 
other people are going to bring, as you say, their own creative vision to this project, and I have to let them. I have to step back and let them. And you are actually just the writer. Just the writer. (laughs) And when you're writing a book, being just the writer makes you God. You yeah. are the in control of this entire universe. Absolutely. And it was an interesting ego check and it, it was a new learning process and I enjoyed it. You definitely are learning a lot on this screenplay journey. I am. And even if it comes to nothing, which it probably will, <laughs> I will have learned a lot and it's been fascinating. Excellent. And what have you been reading or watching or consuming to help with that process? Well, I saw on Facebook that some women that I really respect were recommending a TV show called Fisk. Yes! <laughs> have you seen it, Kale? Uh, this week I have been watching Fisk. That's exactly what we've been watching this week and love, love, love it. It is so funny. It's a workplace comedy set in Australia, acted by an Australian comedian who I think is also the creative vision behind the whole show. I think she's one of the writers. She's the executive producer. It's very much her thing. It kind of gives me vibes of The Office, Mm. which is a show Mm. that I absolutely love. That awkward, situational workplace comedy, uh, very much rooted in in awkward scenarios, Mm. people not quite getting on with each other. I'm so glad that you've loved it as well. What do you love about it? Well, I've loved it on several levels. The first is she's a lawyer. Yes, that's right. Working in a small law firm. Yes. And my articles were in a small law firm. I know that small law firm world. With um, the mad clients who come in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we didn't have so many mad clients, but a bit, but, but so it's a world I know. It's mm-hmm. a world I can imagine being in. And then it is so funny. It's hilarious. It really is. I'm not a big laugh out louder. And I have sat laughing out loud as I watched that. And you know, it was recommended to me by women, but my husband is sitting next to me laughing even more loudly than I am. He has loved this show. I watched on my own and I'm trying to make my husband watch it because I know he will love it. Um, it, it's just like you say, if you love the office and um, the, the English version of the office, if you love that, then you will probably love this. And it's just the scene with the light fitting on the man's head. Yeah. That's when I knew. Okay. And there are only six episodes available in South Africa. I nearly cried when I realized. I know. I know. It's so sad. And I hope that everyone will rush out and watch it because I know they've made a second season. Ah. And it will only come to Netflix if the first season does well here. So please, everyone, watch <laughs> it so we can get the second season. Make a trend. <laughs> what have you been consuming lately? Well, I'm so pleased to say that just like I'm getting my mojo back for writing, I seem to be getting my mojo back for reading. And I've mm-hmm. actually read a proper book, mm-hmm. um, like a literary book that Ooh. I'm enjoying. I'm not quite finished, but I still want to talk about it. It is called Water for Flowers. And it's by, I'm, I'm going to say Valerie Perrin. I'm sure there's a Frencher way of saying it mm-hmm. because it is a translation from a French book and it is very much set in France, um, in small town France. And it is about a woman who has come to be a cemetery keeper, mm-hmm. um, in a small town in France. And she is passionate about it. She loves her cemetery. And we start exploring her story, what brought her here. And it is, 
it's tragic in a way, but it's beautiful. It has made me think a little bit about the problem of, for a person who has experienced a certain type of terrible loss, this book might be very triggering and very mm-hmm. upsetting. But you can't say upfront what it is because it is part of the revelation of the story. Right. And right. it would be a huge spoiler to say, listen, you shouldn't read this if you have been through X. Right, right. And it's made me think about how do you deal with that because I think for a person who has been through X, it will come as a horrific revelation right. and upsetting and you would probably slam the book closed. Mm-hmm. So should you be warning the people who've been through X or should you not? Because if you know from the beginning that she's been through X, it, it really is a big plot. Uh, and not plot because it's not a plot-driven book, but it's a big spoiler. Right. Um, so it's, it's made me think about that a lot. How much does one warn the reader what's coming? Okay. And speaking of which, <laughs> <laughs> we have Joe Watson, the romance author, as our interviewee today. We are going to get down into the weeds and ask her some nitty-gritty questions about writing sex scenes, about constructing romance novels, and if that kind of fairly unfiltered graphic talk is not for you, this might not be the episode for you, so consider yourselves warned. But if you are interested to hear about somebody who is really killing it in writing romance. Really killing it. Yes, she is so, so successful. She has made it big internationally. So if that is the kind of thing that interests you and the odd four-letter word does not bother you, please listen on. Our guest today is Joe Watson. Joe is a superstar in the romance genre. She is the author of the Destination Love series, the Starting Over series, a sequence of standalone novels, including Love to Hate You, Love You, Love You Not, uh, most recently What Happened on Vacation, and also the young adult novel Big Boned. Hi, Joe, and welcome to the podcast. How's it? How are you guys? Joe, we are so excited about this episode, but let's start where we always start. How has your writing week been? It's been a quite a bad writing week. I've had a lot of other stuff going on. Oh, you know, when you're a writer, you've got to do all these other things as well, like social media. You've got to embarrass yourself by making TikToks, which I feel like I'm too old to do, but I have to do anyway. So I've had to do a lot of that stuff, which unfortunately most people I think don't know that writing is like 50% you give them a book and like 50% you embarrass yourself on social media. So it hasn't been a great writing week. And has it been a good embarrass yourself on social media week? It has, it has. I embarrassed myself yesterday and I think my video's got 7,000 views. So, 7,000? Yeah, so I think, you know what, you know, I embarrass myself and people watch it. Do you think it works? Do you yeah. think that being a writer on TikTok works and how? Absolutely. 100 million percent. I mean, I cannot stress the importance of book talk at the moment in terms of selling books. I mean, my agent said to me, I think it was at the beginning of the year, that's what she said to me. She was like, get on book talk, Joe, now. I want you to have 5,000 followers by the, by this time. I want your videos. And I was like, okay. I mean, if you just look at, for example, Colleen Hoover, mm-hmm. um, she blew up. And I mean, she, she wasn't a nobody. But what was amazing, what was so good, she had a huge backlist. So that woman is like riding all the way to the bank on her new books and her backlist. I think book talk at the moment is the single most important thing for writers to be jumping on. It is launching careers. It is reviving careers. It is making careers. 
And um, I've seen a spike in sales um, directly. I've seen a spike in sales when I posted a video. I did something for one of my books after the rain. I noticed an immediate spike in sales. My um, big boned, which is translated into French. I won't embarrass myself. It's like la plus forte or something. I don't know, whatever. I think it translates to the strongest. That yeah. kind of went viral in uh, France and it did really well on BookTok and then it sold well. And then as a result, my other French translation also kind of, you know, skyrocketed. So 100, 100 million percent climb on frickin' BookTok. And the type of content, do you always talk about your books? No, I don't. Um, I just think that would be a bit narcissistic. Yeah. I do quite a few book reviews there because I'm an avid reader, obviously. And then I do throw in my books as well. But I think it is really about building a brand that's recognizable, that people like. It's You have to be authentic. You've got to be yourself. So I'm not going to dance. I'm not going to lip sync. That's just gross. For me, anyway. No, no offense to anyone that does that. It's <laughs> personal preference. I'm not doing that. So it's about building a personal brand. So hopefully people kind of get to know Joe Watson, the book reviewer, whatever, and they go, hey, Joe writes books. You know, we dig her. Let's buy one. And do you review books in your genre? So you keep everything within your genre. I actually don't read romance. Okay, that was going to be one of my questions down the line. <laughs> so <laughs> I've never actually read romance. When I started writing romance, I'd never read a romance book. Mm-hmm. It's just not a genre I've ever read in. And it certainly for me doesn't feel like a genre I want to read in now that I'm writing romance full time. It feels very overwhelming. It's like too much, like way too much. It's just... I obviously, like my agent will say to me, you have to read this book and then I'll read that book. And then obviously um, I have to blurb books. So at the moment I'm reading uh, Sophie Cousins and Paige Toon's upcoming books, which is always kind of cool to get, you know. Um, and then I read books that I've got to blurb. But it feels like a bit of a palate cleanser, like I can't read romance when I'm writing it. Mm-hmm. I think that leads us quite smoothly into what we, we always want to know. How did you get here? What is your superhero origin story? Mm. Did little Joe want to be a writer? And tell, tell us your story. Okay. So I was actually saying, I was doing a radio interview last night and I was, I was telling the story. You know, my mom, you know, mothers, they keep all your school reports from like preschool and grade one. And my mom has just moved and I was looking through my preschool reports And one of the things was Joe really enjoys story time. At the end, she often gets up and discusses how the book could have ended (laughs) and what the characters could have done or might have done or should have done instead of. So I think what, what happened was it was a love for story to begin with. And then out of the love for story, I kind of I always knew I was going to I always thought I was going to go into theater which is what I studied. I studied theater at film school and I did do theater for many years fairly and I'm you can't see me I'm doing like little air quotation marks or whatever successfully in the South African scope which kind of means you're not really going to make much of a living doing it so you were an actor no uh uh-uh. I was a director writer producer right yeah uh stage designer I love doing that as well but then whatever um so that's kind of what I went into but you know theater doesn't exactly unless you're in Broadway overseas or whatever theaters you know I, I needed something to kind of be a little bit more substantial than just running around doing theater 
So you are the first person who has come here and said I need something more substantial and then gone into writing. <laughs> okay, you know, and that's a good point. That's actually a good point you make. But I was actually working as a stylist as well at the time, which earns a lot of money, but I absolutely hated. I was like, I just felt I really hated it. It was like you get onto set and you've got to choose a belt for a character and it seems like the most important thing and it's like I don't I actually don't care what color belt the character wears. And that's when I realized this is not the job for me because I'm supposed to care what color belt the character wears and I just didn't. So <laughs> it was quite um and then yeah, so I went into writing. Um I started magazine writing and all that kind of stuff and then eventually where most theater people land up is writing in TV. That's usually the natural progression of where we land. So then it was TV shows and I wrote for soapies for yonks. Um, and then I did corporate copywriting, all that stuff, you know, that stuff that actually earns you money, you know, uh, and TV. But I'd never really considered writing a book. It had never been on my radar, something I wanted to do. And I just stumbled into it. I always say by accident, I was feeling very dismayed with writing in South Africa in general. I'd had some bad experiences where I just was like, I think I'm over writing in South Africa. I think people just don't have, you can't make something that's just funny for funny sake here. There always has to be some kind of a deep meaning or something. We always got to refer back to our past and stuff. And I just felt like, why can't I write something that's just funny for funny sake? Apparently I couldn't. So I got onto Google one day, as one does, and I just started Googling like, writing overseas, how to become a writer overseas. How does a South African writer become a writer overseas? So like all that kind of crap. And I stumbled across this um, writing competition, a romance novel writing competition that was being held on Wattpad, which I'd never heard of. And, and the deadline was like three weeks away. And because I'd never <laughs> wanted to be a, ro a writer, a romance writer. I was like, well, why not enter it? I've got nothing to lose because like, I have no expectations in this field. I've never done it before. So what? Okay. Um, so what, I, what year was that? Was that when Wattpad was at its, in its heyday? No, Wattpad's more in its heyday now, actually, but it, it was sort of actually when Wattpad had just started, when it still mm -hmm. hadn't been legitimized as a legitimate place to get content from. Um, I'm very passionate about Wattpad and, you know, the kissing booth, for heaven's sake, was one of the biggest grossing things, the after series. I mean, you know what? People missed up with the Wattpad nonsense. So, Can you explain to us what Wattpad is? Because I think some of our listeners might not be crystal yes. clear on that. So Wattpad is a, a social media writing platform where anyone, you know, anyone can write a book and post it on Wattpad. And anyone can read the book. And, you know, a lot of people are there not necessarily to become writers. I mean, I know a lot of kids are there reading, you know, from the Philippines who are learning to speak English. Mm -hmm. I often get messages from them going, I'm really trying to, you know, learn English at the moment and your books have been so great. And, and then they say, Oh, I'm trying to write now in English. Do you think you can, you know, read my book and give feedback? So it's actually an amazing community. Um, it's a very caring community, unlike a lot of social media, because I think we all have a common love, which is sort of reading, uh, you know, and writing. So you just pop your stuff up there. Anyone can. It's kind of democratized publishing and write. I think that's why people also don't like it. It's kind of given people an opportunity to become successful, to become published without kind of doing that slog work that you previously had to kind of do. 
So, you know, I posted my, my book on Wattpad, not really expecting much. How much did you write in three weeks? I wrote the whole book. <laughs> I know it was, it was like a vibe. I was like, I was like honored. I was like, why not? And, and, and you didn't know that you weren't supposed to be able to. No, but you know what? <laughs> because I was so ignorant about writing a book and I'd never written one, you know, you're not kind of constrained by all these. I'm like, oh my God, plot, you know, inciting incident. Do I need to? No, you know, I wasn't even thinking about that. I just wrote. It's actually easier to write when you don't actually know how to write, if that makes sense. Yes, okay. it, does. it does to us. Yes, because you get paralyzed by, oh, my God, the plot and the this and the that. And I wrote this book, and I remember posting it. Like, you post chapter by chapter, so you don't have to post it all at once, you know. You And I posted the first chapter, and I woke up the next morning and had, like, 22 reads. I know that sounds – it sounds like nothing, but I was like, oh, my God, 22 people read my book. Whoa, that's so weird. Then I remember by the end of the week, it was kind of like on 20,000. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then that year, it became the most read thing on Wattpad. I won a Watty Award because it was the most trending thing on Wattpad, and it's got millions and millions and millions of reads now. And I landed up winning that competition, which was very odd because I was like, <laughs> I've never written a romance book before. I've never read a romance book before, and I, I won the competition. So I had a really good laugh about that because I just thought this is so weird. It didn't land. That concept didn't land for quite a while. Because then I, because I knew nothing about, and I got a publishing deal, and that was originally with Harlequin. They were trying to branch out into like more cooler stuff. Anyway, it didn't work. So they it, it kind of fizzled out. So I got the rights back to my book. And because I was totally ignorant and I knew absolutely nothing about this industry, I'd heard people say, get an agent, get an agent. So I was like, okay, let me get an agent. So I Googled who are the best agents in the world <laughs> because, you know, I know nothing about anything. And, you know, they all came up in their little list. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start emailing them. So off I start emailing like Trident Media, Curtis Brown, the Bent Agency, start emailing all these people. Literally within a day or two, <laughs> I had like – three agencies that wanted my book, which was really weird. That's so amazing. I know. So I was like, this is so strange. Did you know that that's really extraordinary? I didn't at the time at all. I had no idea. You see, so that's what I'm saying. I was so, I just went in it like brazen because I had no idea that an agent was like a big deal. I'd heard people say, get an agent. So I was like, okay. Because <laughs> I've just got to say for listeners, you write to a hundred agents. If one agent comes back and yeah. says to you, can I read your full book? Because you don't send your full book, you send a few chapters. Yeah. If you get one out of the hundred asking for your full, you, you really, you do well. And, <laughs> and I, even had a, <laughs> I even had a spelling mistake in my, you know, the letter you write that goes with the book. I actually even had a spelling mistake in it. So I honestly don't know why anyone got back to me but they did um the first person that actually got back to me was curtis brown in the uk and they they said no to my book but they were like you know it's it's really great it's just we've got too many books that are similar but i'm sure someone's gonna snaffle it up quickly and she got back to me like within a day and then trident media got back to me and the bent agency got back to me and i landed up going with trident media agency which is like literally the best agency in the world so I don't know how that happened and that's what happened like I, I woke up one day and I was like oh it seems that I'm I'm a writer it seems like I'm an author that's what it would seem and then that just kind of snowballed from there and yeah 14 books down the, wo- the road 
Um, quite a lot sold internet. Well, a, a lot sold internationally. And yeah, I'm a full-time writer. It just sort of happened. I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. That's why I said it was accidental. <laughs> it's a magnificent story. I've got a big smile on my face. I'm also like dying of jealousy, but, but that's a side we've, story. We've talked about that. We, we deal with it. <laughs> I, I have to thank Wattpad, honestly. That's where my career started. They launched my career. I mean, if it wasn't for me, I would never, I don't think I ever would have been taken on if it wasn't for me going to an agent and going, I've already got an inbuilt fan base. You know, I've mm. got, I mean, I've got a hundred and some 20,000 followers now there. Um, my books have got millions of reads and I'm coming to you with an inbuilt fan base already. Okay. So I think that's what makes it incredibly attractive for yeah. a publishing company because they spend a lot of money launching a person. Yeah. There's a nobody. We're publishing a book. Let's hope people buy it. Whereas I came with a book that had millions of reads. I had, you know, tens and tens of thousands of followers at the time. So I came with a package that was more appealing to them. So I don't think it was just down to my talent. Like, I don't think I wrote the world's most spectacular book that blew every agent away. I think that I came as a package that was appealing to them from a financial and marketing perspective. That's fantastic. So, Joe, when your writing week is going well and you being your sort of super productive self, what does that look like? What do your hours look like, your words per week or per day? What does that look like? Well, I always sort of work backwards from my deadlines. So I've got a deadline for, you know, October. I write books that are 110,000 words. I divide it by the amount of working words, and it usually comes out at about 2,500 words a day. So although my my writing is quite chaotic, I mean, I don't plot or anything. I kind of just fly by the seat of my pants and stuff. My writing process is very, very controlled, very mathematical, very precise. I go into my office. I write X amount of words for the day. I have to hit my goal. Some days it's easy. Some days it's not. Um, if I hit more words that day, I kind of add it up and I go, oh, well, that's great. I've got 500 less words to write tomorrow or spread out over the next month. So that's how I work. Um, it's my full-time job, so I wake up and I work mm -hmm. and I write. You and know? talk to us about that plotting versus pantsing. Oh, sorry. So so you are telling us you are a pantser, you sit down and write, or do you have a, a core of an idea? I write books based on the most flimsiest of ideas. I will come up with like, maybe it's a scene or maybe it's something I want a character to do, or maybe it's a location. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to write a book set in Zanzibar with, you know, I don't know, someone who likes dogs. I'm just making it up. And that will sort of be the starting off point. It, 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 the ideas are not even, I mean, they, they, they're not fully formed ideas. They're like little microscopic atoms of ideas. And most of the time in the beginning, I used to get away with it. I don't get away with it that much anymore because I, I constantly write myself into corners. I mean, this one book I wrote, oh my God, the, the love you, love you not. I wrote myself into such a corner that I had to backtrack like a million times and kind of start again. So I'm trying to plot more, but I just don't. So now I kind of at least kind of sort of know where maybe I'm going. And then I sort of work towards that. The, the genre of rom-com does dictate certain conventions and certain plot conventions. So in a way, does that help you with the plotting? And what are those conventions? What are the things you feel you can't not do? 
Well, I actually don't really, like, because I don't really read it and I never really studied writing because I don't try not to bog myself down in that. So I don't read those kinds of books because then I'm going to sit there and question everything I do because I've, I've done it instinctually. I've never really gone, oh, I need to do this. Then you need to do that with them. And, you know, I think though what one does stick to in, in romance is very much tropes. Yes. So tropes used to be a dirty word. When I started writing, you couldn't say this is, a whatever trope that was considered quite filthy it's like that is really we can't say oh my god that's no that's downplaying it now however and i actually really like this romance books have been sold on this is the trope it's grumpy mm-hmm. sunshine it's enemies to lovers What's grumpy mm-hmm. sunshine grumpy sunshine is like my favorite <laughs> so you have like a really grumpy person and a really sunshiny person and the sunshiny person irritates the fuck out of the grumpy person and then they land up falling in love, obviously. Grumpy Sunshine. Uh, so I love Grumpy Sunshine. I've written two. <laughs> I love Grumpy Sunshine. I also love Enemies to Lovers, um, which is kind of Grumpy Sunshine as too. I like it when people don't like each other and then, you know, they land up falling. Well, I mean, look, the but, convention is they always fall in love. Spoiler alert. They always fall in love. Um, so I suppose that's the one thing you have to happen in the books. And then what's the other, I mean, what are the other tropes I like? You know, I do like an office rom-com for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I've never worked in an office before and it seems like quite an intriguing environment for me. Um, what's the other tropes I like? Opposites attract is always fun. Um, have you done a reverse harem? I don't write those kinds of books. <laughs> what is a reverse harem? That's when the woman has about a million men instead of the men having a million women. Yeah. At their disposal, mm. at their fingertips, so to speak. I see. Mm. I Very see. popular, I believe. Oh, really? So is Amish romance. Yes. So yes. there's a genre for everyone, guys. We've actually got a, an author in South Africa called Mari Dry. Now, she writes alien romances. She writes romances with aliens, and it does really well overseas. So there we go. There's something for everyone. The nice thing about romance is there are all these subgenres in it. Mm. And... You can find whatever you want. If you want to have sex with aliens, there we go. If you want an Amish romance, go for it. I mean, if you want something super steamy, taboo, you want dark mafia vibes, it's all there. And would I be right in saying there are also all different levels of how erotic it is? Yes. From from really sweet, sweet, Mm. everything's behind a closed closed door door. to full-on, like, softcore porn. Okay. The thing now is... I was writing, I always wrote in a genre where there has to be steam. In fact, rom-coms now, the steam level is huge. So the books these days, and the teens are loving them, by the way. They're loving them. I bumped, I, I was at the Kingsmead Book Festival and I was chatting to the teens and they are lapping up the hardcore steam. And I don't think their parents know what they're reading, but whatever. Everything's become steamier. And my books have also had to become steamier and steamier to kind of keep up with the steamy trends. What are you, can you give us your best tips for writing sex scenes? Because I think a lot of authors get stuck here and sort of have to psych themselves up for weeks and then recover for a few more weeks afterwards. Uh, my husband has actually made me stop saying I'm bad at sex in, in interviews. He said, please, can you just be clear? You're bad at writing sex. Don't, don't, don't go. I'm bad well, at well sex. Well, well done in- for you. Good for you. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is, I'm being dead serious. Yes. I'm please. being very, very we want serious. The nuts and bolts. Okay. I watch, I'll go on to Pornhub. 
Mm-hmm. And I will Google female-friendly porn a lot of the mm-hmm. time. I will watch it female. and I will describe often what's happening. You know what I mean? I will literally, because the act of sex is very much the same. You know, there's a, there's a penis, there's a vagina, they're merging, right? And there's only so much. I'm sorry for the listeners that they're missing the hand signals. Yeah, okay, yeah, with yeah. And it's emerging. <laughs> and sometimes, honestly, this is the truth. I'll watch porn and I'll pause it and I'll like, he flipped her over onto her back. And then I press play again. And then I'm like, oh, he rolls her over. <laughs> he, he bends her over the chair. So honestly, I'll sometimes watch porn and plagiarize it, to be honest, because you, you run out of ideas. You really, really run out yes. of ideas. I find writing sex scenes quite awkward. I mean, I think everyone does. Um, what I find most, okay, what I find more awkward is writing those scenes where people fall in love and they've got to do the cheesy, you know, that I feel a bit nauseous doing, but I have to do it. Um, because I'm not a romantic person at all. I, I'm, I'm like, actually don't do romance in my real life. So I find that element quite cheesy and like I mean even now like I feel like I'm blushing and giggling a bit because that really freaks me out you know they stare into each other's eyes and you know they do that stuff um but yeah watch porn and and plagiarize porn that is incredibly helpful yeah not the advice I was expecting at all and probably the most practical advice we've ever heard it is practical it is so practical because these are professionals they know what they're doing. I mean, if he's flipping her over the chair and her legs are in the, on his shoulders, it's that good enough. That must en- be hard stuff. Th- it's good enough for our books. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know? Um, that leads me to, you know, you're talking how you don't read rom-com and you find writing sex and romance awkward sometimes. Are you ever attracted to trying a different genre? I'm so, tra- I'm so attracted. To- yes. Yes, capital letter, Y-E-S. I, I, like I said, I kind of fell into the genre accidentally. Um, but I think, I mean, I have written in other genres and I've posted in other genres on Wattpad under different names. And then I wrote um, something else in a different genre that was optioned by, you know, a, a overseas film company. So I know that I'm good in other genres. What genres? That was actually like, it was environmental sci-fi. Not really sci-fi. It's like environmentally thriller vibe. Mm-hmm. Environmental thriller. Yeah. You've written an environmental thriller, Fiona. Mm, sort, sort of. of. <laughs> sort of. It's a thriller, but it has elements of environment. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> like climate change. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Disaster. Disaster. The world dystopia. Blah, 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 okay. blah, blah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and then I've written, um, really a very, very dark thriller that, um, the Germans actually wanted to turn into a podcast. I didn't land up going down that route though, because I want to publish it as a book first. So actually I'm more attracted to the dark twisty stuff. Um, because I'm actually a bit of a dark twisty person, although I do. So I use humor to deflect in life. So I think that's why I'm good at writing comedy because I deflect with humor in real life, basically. Mm. It's so interesting and resonates. A lot of. Are you also dark and twisty? I'm dark and twisty, but I'll I'll tell you another time how um, dark and twisty. How dark and twisty. Okay. (laughs) Um, A lot of Joburg-based writers who are writing for an overseas audience and are writing romance will try to set their books in New York or San Francisco or London or whatever. 
But the books of yours that I've read have been set in mm. Joburg with a recognizable mm. setting, not the kind of angsty South African themes, but it's here. Mm. These are South Africans doing South African things. And it has worked for you. Have you not felt that pressure to try to set something overseas? I was told unequivocally to change the settings of my books by my agent. And I said, no, it's a deal breaker. Absolutely not. I know nothing about American life. I know nothing about UK life. How am I going to write something about a girl, you know, nipping about on the underground work? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just not going to work for me. I, I'm not going to be able to write that authentically. It's not going to happen. So they were all like, well, you know, your books aren't going to do well overseas then probably. And, um, that was sort of a non-negotiable for me. I just said, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not setting it in a fucking American ranch. I don't know anything about that. Mm. So I stuck to my guns and so far it's worked. It hasn't hurt you at all by the looks of it. Well, I think maybe it's hurt me in America, but my sales in the UK are much higher than America. And I know that Americans tend to kind of, I, I think comparatively my sales in America are not as good as, the UK. So I do think it probably has hurt me a bit in, in the US. Right. I think the South African voice is closer to the UK voice. Much. And our comedy. Our yes. comedy. I mean, you, all you got to do is, I always use this example, look at the American office, look at the, the British yes. office. Mm-hmm. I'm not laughing at the American office. Yes. We laughing at the British office here. So I think my humor resonates in the UK much more than it does in the US because it's a yeah. bit tongue-in-cheek. It's a bit sarcastic. I mean, the stuff I write, there's an undertone of sarcasm and stuff and I don't know that the US loves that that much I I don't think it's about setting I think it's about voice Um, I think South African writers just find themselves an audience in the UK that they don't quite find in the US no I mean look I'd love to blow up in the US that'd be amazing you know blowing up in the UK is great it makes you a living and you do well but blowing up in the US is like on another level absolutely you know I'll I'll get a private jet and we'll we'll do this next podcast (laughs) flying (laughs) over the Maldives in a private jet I mean that's how big you get in America if you blow up I mean that is the dream isn't it I don't know, I'll settle for what you've got, which which is, let's talk about this aspect of it. You are massive overseas. You're massive. Mm. But I feel like, and I don't know if this is me in my bubble, I feel like it's with the latest book that South Africans mm. are getting to know you more. Mm. And I, I want to unpack that on several levels. The first thing is, why is it this book? Have you got a South African distributor this time? What has changed with this book? My agent told me to get big in South Africa. And you just did. Yeah. So, because I'd been, I'd been hiding in South Africa, deliberately avoiding this vibe in South Africa. But my agent basically just said, you have to get big in South Africa with this book. There's no excuse now. You've got to stop hiding from your local market. So I was like, okay. All right. Fine. And did she give a reason? Um, <laughs> I, I don't think they do give reasons. Well, it's just an untapped market and yeah, you are physically here. It's so untapped, why not? Well, exactly. It's an untapped market and I'm physically here and it builds my brand, blah, blah, blah. You know, when an agent tells you something, you don't, you don't necessarily ask too many questions. When they say get on book talk and make videos, you go, okay, <laughs> you know, get big in South Africa, Joe. Okay. So I had to come out of hiding with this book specifically. So do you think that the reason that you are like this unknown treasure within the South African writing community is because you kept yourself like that? Or do you think it's because we have really bad 
stereotypes and prejudices against romance writing? It's an absolute combination of both. Number one, I kept myself incognito. I was hiding. And number two, let's be honest, the South African book market has not really been very receptive. In fact, I think we one of the least what did we we got color tv last didn't we in south africa or something yes. okay so we get in romance last as well is kind of the the story here so i think with the emergence of book talk what it's done is it's catapulted romance into the mainstream if you went to exclusive books a year ago you wouldn't see romance as the best sellers now you look at the best seller shelf except for you gail who's at the top of the best seller <laughs> shelf at the moment Not and anymore, who clearly did you no i saw you at number one yesterday at rosebank Really? Yes, I did. I took a photo. I was actually going to post it, and I didn't. Very exciting. You, you're number one on Rosebank. I, I saw it with my own two eyes. So now if you cast your eye to the exclusive books, bookseller, bestseller thing, you know, you've got your Colleen Hoovers, you've got your Ali Hazelwoods, you've got your Joe Watson. millions of people. <laughs> I can't think of their names now. That, that Cassandra Complex one. Yes. This is what I'm actually chatting about tonight at Rosebank, um, is that – you know, I do think our genre dem- demands a little bit more respect. I do think people need to realize that all books are valuable books, that, you know, literary fiction is not necessarily the thing. You know, we love a political vibe in South Africa. You know, the books about ANCs and politics sell so well, which was my original kind of peeve. Why can't I just write something funny for funny's sake? That was sort of my peeve. I feel like, you know, we're quite serious when it comes to the literary aspect. It's like, why not? Why can't we write something that's fun? Why the hell not, you know? I mean, I'm not out there trying to win a Pulitzer Prize. Like, I'm I'm not out there trying to be Donna Tartt. That's not what I'm doing. I'm writing books that are entertaining, that are escapist, that make people laugh and feel good. That's what I'm doing. So why is my book less valuable than someone else's? I mean, the responses I get from readers, I mean, during the pandemic, these were probably, this, these are, this is probably my most proud moment was during the pandemic. I was sort of flooded by readers saying they've been reading my books now. It, it's the only thing getting them through these times. They're really enjoying it. For me, that was the highlight of my career. The highlight of my career was that not selling hundreds of thousands, whatever. That was the highlight because I realized my books do have impact on readers. They are important. They're valuable. They're valuable for a different reason. You know, they're valuable. You know, the goldfinch is valuable in that way and mine is valuable in its way. I'm not going to make any comment about what I would rather read, mm-hmm. but I think it's I clear anyone who's listened to this podcast knows. I love Donna Tartt, though. I love Donna Tartt. I love Donna I just didn't, the Goldfinch was a hard one. I'm going to say if you said to me you've got to reread a Joe Watson or you've got to reread the Goldfinch, Joe Watson all the way at the moment, which is I think what I was about to say. My feeling is the world has become harder and darker. Mm-hmm. And as readers, we're looking for lighter and happier. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons. Do you, do you feel that's true? One of the reasons romance is coming as well as book talk, that romance and rom-com is coming to the forefront now. I, I do. I, I, w- I did an interview with The Guardian, I think, a year or two years as ago. or whatever. Does. Oh, sorry. I don't mean <laughs> to throw it out like that. And it. the whole thing was about how romance is kind of, doing this, especially when we went through the pandemic, I think that that sort of also helped to skyrocket Mm. rom-com, to skyrocket, you know, light reads as opposed to very heavy ones. And then, I mean, I think, you know, if you go into book talk, 
what's great about the community is they they are not afraid to share they don't have this guilty pleasure shame associated with reading romance they're just out there saying oh we love this oh my god this is amazing so i think that with a younger generation sort of standing up and saying actually we don't have that guilt and shame over romance we actually love it you know we're obsessed with it it's kind of making it okay to like romance I think that feeds into my next question, which is the way the endings of um, romances have changed lately. Um, it used to be happy ever after. Your couple had to be either at the altar or headed for the altar. And now we have the so-called happy for now thing. Which one do you do and, and which one do you think goes over better with audiences? So... H-E-A's, happy ever afters, as they're called, <laughs> H-E-A's. Mm-hmm. I have to write those in my in my adult romance books. That's just the vibe. In fact, people get angry if you don't have the happily ever after. However, in my teen books, I write the happy for now because mm-hmm. I think that's more realistic. I don't think we should feed teenagers this dream that they're going to marry the guy that they're absolutely in love with at 16. Oh, gosh, I yes. don't think that that is – and certainly not what I want to do. So in both of my teen books that I've written, I've done a – happy for now the person had a great impact on their life they learned a lot for them maybe they'll get together maybe they won't but there was a value in the relationship that they had so i'm not a fan of heas and young Mm adults because i think it's i mean i think reading little girls cinderella and all that stuff i actually think it's just i mean if i'd had a daughter i wouldn't have read of those books Mm -hmm. but that's just me um but yeah i mean readers get quite upset if you don't have the happy ever after in the romance book and they get quite upset if you landed on a cliffhanger unless you put this book lands on a cliffhanger as a note you have to say that now otherwise you get bad reviews like i can't believe the author left me you know so yeah very interesting so you think one of the ways you can get away with that is by telling people up front this is what you're getting you have to tell people up front if there's a cliffhanger people do not like to read a book with a cliffhanger they don't. Unless they're told. That's... Unless they're told there's a cliffhanger and unless they know it's part of a series. Uh-huh. Yeah. So if you think about Fifty Shades. I try not. I'm afraid. <laughs> no, but, no, but let's <laughs> but talk, amazing but book, let's let's talk, talk about Let's that. actually talk about that. You see, yeah. there comes the bias yeah. there. Let me 100%. tell you something. Why? Okay. I didn't, I didn't read the, I, I didn't enjoy it. It's not a particularly well written book. We all know yes. that. We're not idiots here, right? But it changed the face of, it changed culture. Do you know that sex in injuries, sex toy injuries, this is a fact, you can Google it, went up by 80%, emergency ER visits, <laughs> fact, Google it, went up by 80% with that book's release. So you know you had couples yeah. everywhere pulling out sex toys and invigorating their sex life. Yeah. Like how is that not valuable? How is it not valuable that a million relationships people were having kinky sex and loving their lives. Well, except for the injured ones. Except for the injured ones, right? That, <laughs> uh, you, and I mean, really, Google it. It's fascinating. There was a lot of foreign body removal um, and sex toy injuries up by 80%. So that is the kind of impact that that book had on society. So I don't care if you don't like it. You have to acknowledge that book changed the face of society. And I think also um, because she started it as fan fiction. Yes, and and exactly. it, it normalized fan fiction. I think my concern about it, why I try not to think about it, is I'm worried about the 
the unhealthy dynamics in the relationship that that now are being sold to young women as normal. The power dynamics of a man controlling you being sold as normal. That's where my objection comes. And I and I know, but I know uh, there is that, but that is a whole subgenre of romance, the controlling yes. masculine alpha male. That is what women want to read. I don't like guys like that. I don't like alpha males. Not one of my books has an alpha male in. However, if I had to write a book with an, I would probably, that book would sell the most. I can tell you now because women want that. And I don't necessarily think they're carrying it through into real life. Hmm. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. I think they just want that fantasy of like, a guy that is controlling that tells them what to do and shoves them down on a bed and goes, you're mine now. No other man can touch you, which I, I just read. I mean, I did read the one romance book recently because uh, everyone told me to read a twisted love, twisted games, whatever. And the guy's like, you know, now that I've touched you, you belong to me. Like no one else can touch you again. And I'm like, what a fucking asshole. But you know, at, but, but that's, women want to hear like a lot of women want to hear that in their fantasy lives as you say i yeah. don't know that it necessarily translates to no. what they want in real life i don't think it and translates. women can keep those two things separate mm. it's a fantasy yeah, why can't women have you know men have traditionally always been the guys with the fantasy and this is woman's fantasy escape you know romance keeps reinventing itself and reinvigorating itself and for a while, it seemed as though the future of romance was digital. Everything was going digital. People didn't need to know on the subway what you were reading. You could enjoy it privately. But it seems to me that the latest resurgence in romance is the paper book, mm-hmm. the one that's on the top 10 mm. booksellers mm. at exclusive books. Has, is that the, the future as it seems to be now? I'll tell you exactly why that is. It's because of Bookstagram. Mm-hmm. It's because... Bookstagram sort of started and reinvigorated the paperback because all these girls wanted to take beautifully curated pictures. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen that girl that builds dragons and things and lies in the middle of all her books. Have you seen her? She builds these elaborate, huge kind of things and, you know, lies in the middle of her books. But I mean, the, the Bookstagram kind of brought the paperback to life again, for sure, because girls wanted to take... No, I'm just say girls, but well, I mean, everyone was bookstagrammy, but it is mainly, it is mainly women. Yeah. Let's, you know, be honest here. They wanted to take books where they nestle the book in, you know, flowers and fairy mm. lights and stuff. And I don't think we'd ever sort of seen books presented in that way mm. until bookstagram came about. And then taking that over into book talk, they want to hold the physical copy. Mm. They want to film themselves opening the mm. pages. You know, what are they going to do in the video? They're just going to show the screenshot of, the book in the corner mm. so and and the teenagers really they are the ones that invigorated the sales of of paperbacks for sure so we can thank social media definitely for that and for the younger generation and it just goes to show that one of the things that people talk about in like doomsday this is killing reading is actually doing exactly the opposite it's actually reinvigorating reading social media is actually getting people reading well, that's what Wattpad was doing. Yeah. I mean, Wattpad was getting kids all over the world reading. Like, what is what is wrong with that? Mm. I don't care. Let them read. It's amazing. 
And that kind of started this whole, you know, bibliophile, book lover, biblio lover. Now there's a whole group of kids that are like, well, I'm geeky and I read books and that's okay because there's a huge community of us. So they found their community. I mean, I think, in you know, in our days or whatever, if you were like a kid that loved to read books at home, you were like, oh, my God, such a nerd, such a geek. Now there's a huge community of them. So they have their own place, which is great. So they have kind of, I think, Wattpad, then you had Bookstagram, and then obviously BookTok. And BookTok is, I cannot stress how important this is for you as an author. Get on it, embarrass yourself. Just, you know, it's the way, you know. I mean, you know, someone on BookTok does a review. And what's great, it's peer-reviewed. That's what's great about it because you trust your peers. You don't necessarily trust whatever the magazine is to say this is a good book it's the the thing is it's peer reviewed and if you like a person you know you like what they read off it goes joe i'm interested to hear what you are hearing via your agent or just being in the industry what the latest trends are in romance where is the genre heading i know this is a million dollar question but do you have a sense of what are the tropes that are doing well what are the ones that maybe aren't doing well now but are anticipated to do well romanticy romanticy fantasy romance right dragons rebecca Mm -hmm. yaros fourth wing is probably arguably the biggest book in the world right now my agent represents her so that is where it's going. So it seems to go through these trends, like paranormal romance was huge at one point. Mm-hmm. Then it dipped down. Mm-hmm. Rom-com comes up. Now we're talking romanticy, which is the combination of fantasy romance. That's where people want to be these days. And I can't write in that genre. That's not my strength. I'm not into – I like real things. I, I'm, I don't think I'd be into writing about dragons and stuff. But I think the people that are going to be going into that are going to be huge. I think that this is where it is now is romanticy. Very, very interesting. And it actually resonates in a way. I started reading fantasy and during COVID rather than – I know a lot of people started reading a lot of rom-coms. So fantasy it's that and rom-coms, It's yes. that overlap of those things that really take you out of yourself and into a very happy place. Exactly. And who knew that a book about dragons was going to basically – again, change the bloody face of the world. And I mean, I think it's launching a new, I think this is the era of romanticy. Okay. So you're not reading it yourself. (laughs) Well, I have read Fourth Wing. Okay. I have read it and it is, it's addictive. It is addictive. You know, it's an underdog story as well. I think that's what makes it. I, for me, the dra- okay, the dragons are interesting, but for me, the most interesting thing was this underdog. You know, um, the, the main character, Violet Sorensen, she's kind of like the underdog. She's not going to succeed. She's going to be eaten. She's going to be killed, but she doesn't. And you, you land up rooting for her. So for me, I always kind of like attach myself to the human element mm-hmm. in a book. Mm-hmm. The dragons were kind of almost irrelevant. In a way, it was more this this girl's story. So you know what? You know, I always attach myself to the human element. And there was an enemies to lovers trope because enemies to lovers is huge. Enemies to lovers. Um, so there was enemies to lovers. It's an underdog story, enemies to lovers. And there is a lot of body health reps. So, for example, the main character has, she's quite weak muscularly. They don't name the condition, but it's probably like, Ellis Downler syndrome or some, you know, she sprains her ankle all the time. So that's also a huge trend as own voices and mental health rep in book plus size rep. So neurodivergent rep, you know, those are also, if you can weave that in, 
You're going to have like, let's get some autistic dragons in a thing with a plus size chick. I'm set, you know. I'm <laughs> autistic dragons. Plot, I mean, autistic dragons with a plus size girl. That's it's what I'm, yeah. It's, I mean, story. that's, I mean, guys, I write that. I'm going to sell a million copies tomorrow. I love that. Exactly. <laughs> so I think my prediction is romanticy. And I've predicted a few things that people have laughed at. I was like, I think mermaids and mermen are going to come back in. Everyone laughed at me. Lo and behold, we had a spate of mermaid books. So I just, yeah, not that I, again, I couldn't write one of those books. I would find it hard to account for their genitals. I did a whole thing in my latest book about um, mermaids' genitals. There is a whole thing in my upcoming book where they debate what kind of genitalia. Do they have mammalian Gelatania or Piscean because you don't see it. And what else have you been reading or watching or listening to lately that's gone down well with you? Oh my God, you know what? You asked me to do this and I was like, I really must look at my Goodreads to see what I've read because I always forget the books. But Any Man by Amber Tamblyn is the best book I've ever read. It's about a female serial rapist and it's written in prose and it's written in poetry as well. Word for Word is one of the best written books I've ever read, number one. Number two, the most unique concept and also brings up really kind of interesting uh, ideas around sexual abuse suffered by men versus women. Mm-hmm. Very good book. The other book that I'm loving, it's probably the most reprehensible book I've ever read, is Tampa by Alyssa Nutting and it's about a female pedophile. I just read a weird book called The Guest. So what's that about and why did you enjoy it? So The Guest by Emma Klein feels like, it feels like a fever dream. It's one of these weird books that, I mean, I recommended it to a few people. Some people absolutely hated it and some people loved it. It's not a book that you're going to be mediocre about. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. I absolutely hated the ending, but having said that, though, it's still a five-star read for me. It's just the weirdest book. It's about, I think they call it a grifter. A girl drifter is a grifter. And she kind of, she just makes her way into like the underbelly of the rich Hamptons and kind of just goes from one weird situation to the next, one weird person. One, The whole thing just feels like a fever dream. I like books that make you feel very uncomfortable. I love that. I love feeling very uncomfortable. So interesting. It's uh keep away from feeling uncomfortable. I protect myself a great deal, but I'm fascinated. No, I like, by I like to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> like one of those books where you like, you're not sure if you should like it. You're like, Oh my God, I actually feel a bit bad for really liking this book. I'm like, oh, you know, so I like that. Brilliant. Well, I don't think anyone feels bad for liking your books and we hope that everyone checks out what happens on vacation and then goes and seeks out your backlist and nice. has a wonderful reading time because they will. I can guarantee it. I can guarantee it too. Thank oh, you so God. much for your time, Joe. It's been Pleasure. wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Gail, I am still stunned by that interview with Joe. I can't believe how things just went right for her from the very, very beginning. It mm. is like a fairy tale. It is like a fairy tale. And what I was fascinated by is she was so innocent to what an extraordinary thing was happening to her. She had the dream um, and she was so ignorant about the world of writing that she didn't know she was having the dream. I, it, it, You know, that's what I got from it. I think that if you 
approach your writing career from a position of total fearlessness of not knowing that this isn't the way it's supposed to go. You just go, people told me to get an agent, so I got an agent kind of thing. <laughs> it, it, I think it just gives you an energy-driven impulse that leads to success, apparently. And she is all about energy. She exudes energy. I mean, I, I feel very um, revitalized by that interview. She is a person full of energy. Yeah, she makes things happen, and and they lo and behold, they happen. A hundred percent. May may we all somehow channel that. And what did you get out of that interview? So, I was very interested in how adamant she is about book talk because mm. I have been having a bit of a weird relationship with TikTok. Um, I have tried to be a regular TikToker mm-hmm. and uh, for for a few weeks have been doing or a few months have been doing a TikTok a day. Right. And I'm, I'm finding it very strange. I'm finding it very unclear whether it's having any effect on anything. Um, I seem to get the same amount of views for everything regardless of what the content and then occasionally something that I regard as very poor lazy content gets an enormous amount of views and I just I, I don't understand it. From what I understand it's normal to not understand TikTok. That's part of the TikTok process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been playing with the idea of stopping. Okay. And Joe has motivated me to not give up quite yet. You see, I think because you don't have access to your back end, you can't see your sales on a day-to-day mm. basis, as I understand it, not That's even right. your booketeer sales, yeah. right? So you can't see that if you spend a week promoting a particular book of yours, mm. what that does to the sales. Yeah. And with my independently published books, I can see that. I do have hour by hour access to the back end. And I can see that if we spend a week featuring book X, it actually gives a bump in sales to book X, which gives one the encouragement to carry yes. on. That's quite comforting to know. That's lovely to know. Thank you for telling me, Fiona. <laughs> And your writing advice for the week? So because I'm in editing, I'm, I'm dealing with a thing that I'm very bad at. And I'm editing two books, my own and a Katie Gale. And it's timelines. Keeping track of what day of the week are you in? What year of the story are you in? Mm-hmm. Um, with the Katie Gales, it's really important. You're dealing with a, a small amount of time. And the murder happened on a Wednesday. How many days have passed? What day are you on? Would the shops be open? What time of day are you in? Mm-hmm. I'm terrible at it. And my advice to writers is to get into the habit of keeping track of your timeline from the beginning. So make a little comment on the side of your manuscript saying, Monday morning, right. and now Monday afternoon, and now you've moved to Tuesday, if you're dealing with that type of tight day plotting. Mm-hmm. And if you're dealing with a bigger picture to keep track of that. Where are you in the years? Have cell phones been invented yet? Um, what would be on television? What, you know, because otherwise you, I've had an experience early in my writing career where I wrote pages and pages and pages involving a cell phone. Right. Only to realize I was in the 1980s. Right. And obviously I had to rewrite the entire scene in a completely different way. So keeping track of timelines is really important. Yeah, I just wrote um, a few chapters where uh, 
these characters are children and they're playing Minecraft. And only afterwards did I figure out that when these particular characters of their age were children, Minecraft hadn't been invented yet. So I'm going to have to go back and turn it into Super Mario or something that had been invented or, or Pac-Man if we're going to go way back. Um, yeah, no, that's a very good point. And uh, my writing advice had to do with stuff that I wanted to ask Joe. I thought I was going to ask her some very nitty-gritty questions about plotting, like does she use the five-act structure and, you know, at what point do you have to hit this beat and that beat? And it it became clear very early on that she is a pantser, not a plotter. Yes. And my advice to people would be, if you have that kind of enthusiasm and energy that Joe exudes and that she obviously brings to her manuscripts, you can propel a plot along just by the sort of sheer will of mm. your mind. But if you kind of run out of momentum or don't want to write yourself into a corner, then try a little bit of adv- advanced plotting just to save yourself time later on. I would say if you're a first-timer, Mm-hmm. Try and plot a little bit because otherwise you will, you'll have that first burst of energy. You'll write a whole lot and then you'll realize that you actually have no bloody idea what you're doing and you won't know how to get out of it. So if you at least have an end in sight, then you know what you're writing towards. And in that process, you might discover that actually you can pants. You didn't need that end plot in, in sight or you might discover that actually you like to plot things out scene by scene. Yes, absolutely. And um I think the energy that Joe brought, especially to her first manuscripts of not having been taught the mm. right way to do it, somehow gave her the confidence just to sort of push on until she reached the end. And I suspect now, 14 books later, she no longer does it quite like that. I think she has to be probably more deliberate about what she's doing and more thoughtful and perhaps plan ahead a bit more because that that sort of newbie energy Mm. is not something one can sustain forever. Whereas I also, for other writers, I think it works exactly the opposite, that some writers start out being really careful plotters and then get the confidence to become pantsers. So I think think maybe the lesson is that your process can change. Yeah, and and it does. I think we've both had that experience. A hundred percent. We would like everybody to go out and look for What Happens on Vacation by Joe Watson. Gail and I have both read it, and it is such a lot of fun. We highly recommend it. If you have tried to write in the romance genre, if you are a reader of romances, if you have read anything by Joe Watson, please get in touch with us. We're on all social media, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.